0: Hello, my friends, and welcome to The Shrink and the Pundit, where you can listen in on one of my favorite ongoing conversations, and it's an ongoing conversation of, I think, over 10 years now, with my integral comrade and in arm and favorite shrink, our integral psychotherapist extraordinaire, Dr. Keith Witt. How are you doing this morning, Keith? I'm doing great this morning, Jeff. How are you? It's, I'm doing great. It's, it's good to be with you and talk to you again, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm Jeff Salzman, the pundit of this duo. You can find my stuff on dailyevolver.com, and you can find uh, Keith's work, the therapist in the wild, school of love, and et cetera, at drkeithwit.com. To our old friends, uh, we say thank you for tuning in and listening again. And if you're new to the Shrink in the Pundit series, welcome. Today, Keith and I are going to look at a topic that I think is really one of the special flavors of suffering, uh, particularly particularly in our modern world, and that is anxiety. And I'll say, Keith, just to kick it off, that it's certainly been true for me that anxiety has been one of the big challenges of my life. It's a real shadow constellation, sort of this generalized fear, hypervigilance, It's one of the, you know, constellations of my shadow and it continues to be. I continue to work with it to try to make it go away. (laughs) (laughs) You know, which never works, never works. Make it go away. (laughs) Make it go away. So let's just start with the big question. You've worked with 40,000 plus clients over your long career. And I'm sure you've run into this from time to time. What, what have you learned about this ever so common and yet so painful affliction, anxiety?
1: anxiety comes with self-aware consciousness. Self-aware consciousness came with a lot of price tags on it. And one of the main ones was
0: anxiety. That's really true, isn't it? It's just the nature of being uh, embodied as a separate thing.
1: That's right. And having the capacity to go into the past and the future and into fantasy. Yeah. When we were given that capacity, it gave us so many superpowers that the cost was worth it. Over time, as people have developed, um, they've had to deal with anxiety because anxiety is anticipatory worry. Mm -hmm. Um, It's part of the fear family of emotions. And and people tend to mistake anxiety, fear, and panic as the same thing. And they're not. They're different brain systems, Hmm. um, interrelated. Fear is of something immediate. You know, a guy pulls a gun and sticks it in my face. I'm going to be frightened of him and mobilized to do something, or I'll either freeze or do something. Um, that's fear. Okay, that's in the present moment. Panic uh, panic attacks, which people talk about, is actually a form of separation distress. It goes all the way back to our infancy, and all mammals have that capacity, Um and the reason that we feel so helpless and out of control is because on some level, we're regressing to an infant who can't move her arms and legs and needs somebody around and they're not there. Anxiety is anticipatory. You know, there's something that we're remembering that's distressing, something that we're anticipating that's di- distressing, something that we're imagining that's distressing. Mm-hmm. And then that distress is anxiety and it permeates uh, human awareness. Yeah. Animals don't have much anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know Sapolsky's famous book, "Why Zebras Don't Get um, Stomach Ulcers," basically says we get stomach ulcers because we can imagine the lion uh, jumping on us. The zebra is not imagining the lion jumping on him until the lion jumps on him, mm-hmm. and then you know he deals with it. Yeah. So, so there, that's the first thing. Anxiety comes, and regulating anxiety is something that we have to learn how to do starting at two years old. I mean, just really briefly, from zero to about 11 months, our nervous systems, when they space out, develop capacities for dissociation. And the more attuned a parent is and connected in a relationship, the less a kid lays down those templates for dissociation. Between 11 months and 18 months, where a kid doesn't have a clearly defined sense of self, when a parent disapproves, a kid will have shame reactions, and then the beginnings of the defenses uh, start, projection, denial, and so on. Around two to three, when a kid develops a theory of mind, a sense of themselves as a thinking being and their parents are thinking being and an ability to anticipate, anxiety shows up. And a kid can have anxiety about shame and anxiety about stuff and and anxiety about what they imagine. And then parents need to regulate that with the child, hopefully modeling for the child to learn how to regulate later. And, you know, some parents are better at it. Some kids are easier and some kids are harder and some kids, some parents are worse at it. All right, so from from an integral point of view, you've really
0: covered a lot of ground here because yeah. this awakening into fear, it's like the mm-hmm. fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of I am a bug on the sidewalk, ultimately. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to be able to take my next breath. I don't really know that. And you know, and we wake into that realization. I remember the moment I woke into it. I've talked about this before. I had a dream where a bear came into our house and my dad slept through it and wouldn't wake up and protect me. And I went from a joyous little, you know, toddler to a really timid, fearful kid in one day. I I, I experienced that dream as a real thing. I wasn't until I was 12 years old. That I realized that didn't actually didn't happen. I mean, I thought it did, you know. Yeah. And so the, and, and 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 so that's an individual waking into that. And we also see that from an integral perspective, mankind woke into that as we became self-conscious. And that's why we have it in the animal's dope. When we look into that still pond and see our reflection and realize I am, it's like, oh fuck. You know, I am vulnerable, I am going to die, and that is the special affliction. As you say, it's well worth it. Uh, (laughs) Self-consciousness is well worth it, but that's a very, very significant, you know, baggage that comes along with it.
1: Right. And in uh, tribal society, there are enormous amounts of ritualized anxiety regulation. Interesting. Interesting. Children are held in arms for the six for six months of their life in most tribal societies, at least the ones in the southern hemisphere. There are ceremonies that are designed to get everybody into states that are inconsistent with anxiety. Um, if there's particular kinds of problems, like the bear, you go to the shaman and the shaman gives you solutions. Yeah. And in, in modern child rearing, that's kind of what you have to do with your kid. Um, if you, if my kid is say my kid was a, was afraid of the, you know the raptor in the closet. So opening up the closet, showing the kid there's no raptor, doesn't really do the job. Okay, we have we need a magical solution to that problem. Yeah, and ideally a magical solution that will still be a solution 40 years later. Right. So my kid, we sit down, we imagine a bubble of white light coming between, uh, rising from us. We sustain it until it involves the whole house and the bears can't exist inside the bubble. Mm-hmm. After we do our bubble, we open the door and say, look, the white light made the bear go away. And now you practice the bubble. Wow. Keith, let's pause. That's
0: such a great, I mean, let's just, a, a parenting strategy. I guess yeah. For we can parent ourselves, but uh, also our kids. Rather than look under, look in there. There's nothing in there, you silly boy. Let's uh, fill the room with white light. That the bear can't exist in, and here you do it. Magic worldviews need magic solutions. Yeah, interesting. Well, you know, I did uh, from time to time. You know, bang some drums and go out with the men in the woods and and you know tell my story of my dream or my vision, which is what it was. You know, it exactly. was an absolutely magical vision. That I again, I experienced this real and did work on it and got a totem and you know that's all helped. Yeah. You know, I did it as an adult, but it
1: still helped. Well, yeah, I mean, I've, you know, I've occasionally had to deal with evil people in my life. I won't go go into detail, but you know, when I've had to deal with evil people, I do ceremony to create bubbles of protective light around myself and my family and so on. And I'm not working metaphorically, right? You know, I know that there's there's dark energies that are canceled out by light energies, and 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 I'll do ceremony around it. Yeah. And, you know, I, maybe it's a pre-trans fallacy, but I don't think so. I think something happens. Yeah, I which, do too. Which brings me to the modern problem with anxiety. Particularly in the West, the whole attitude towards pain is let's get rid of it. Yeah. You know, let's medicate it. Let's make it go away. Anti-anxiety, anti-depression. You know, it's like the war on drugs, the war on anxiety, the war on depression. We got We got this war. Well, I'm sorry. All emotions have relevance to our life and to our growth and to our development and we don't want to get rid of anyone i don't want to get rid of my anxiety i don't want to get rid of my depression i want to get rid of my shame or my physical pain or any of that stuff i just want them all to function in a coherent fashion in my incarnation yeah i want the appropriate amount of anxiety i want to act on it in a healthy way just like i want to do the same thing when i'm depressed or when i'm ashamed or any of that stuff yeah well I think
0: back on some of the training I got in my Buddhist training and, and this is particularly from Chogam Trumpa here in Europa started Europa and Shambhala Center and all that and his teaching was that and it's very much co- consonant with what with, with what we've been talking about and that that is the very nature of being that is being a separate self in a you know unified universe and not you know realizing it that so that sense of separation, is itself the vibration of anxiety. Mm-hmm. It's just that that's that very base vibration. So in meditation, we were often instructed to just get in touch with that basic, you know. And they talk about the seed syllable of Tibetan Buddhism is a h h h, and uh, and Trumpa always would uh, define that as ah, <laughs> you know, because that's what what you finally get in touch with. So you sort of work from there. And find how that is sort of constellating and, you know, creating vortexes and, you know, how it's actually the patterns of how that is showing up in your life. And some people have it more than others and so forth. But the idea is, as you said, instead of turning away from it, which never works in Buddhism, you're always turning towards it. And so you turn towards it with the idea of actually metabolizing it into its wisdom properties or what they call transmutation. And that exactly. is
1: sort of the, you know, the, the practice. And that's the practice with all emotions. In a way, the first noble truth, it was a mistranslation mistra- that life is suffering. Uh, for <laughs> yeah. The actual translation is life is like a squeaky wagon wheel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In other words, ang- you know, life is anxiety provoking. Right. And so most of what you find is that in most of the traditions and most of the anxiety uh, remedies, it involves coming first of all coming into the present moment, because if we're fully in the present moment, it's very hard to be in anticipatory anxio- anxious mode. Right. Because if you and I are fully in the present moment, ninety-nine point nine nine percent of the time, we're safe, we're okay, and so once I'm in the present moment, um, then anxiety goes down, and and then I can just pay attention to what the deal is. Right. And you know, because consciousness is so powerful. If we don't attend to this, bad things can happen. For for instance, two of the worst ones are uh, obsessive worry and procrastination. Okay, so you you worry about something, you know, something's going to happen. And then you go, oh, so brains, are remember, are biased towards threat. Our brains are biased to being alert to threat. Right. And 15 to 20% of the time the default mode of our brain is just kind of giving us problems to solve, often threatening problems. And that, and when we're dreaming, most dreams involve stuff we're anxious about, trying to solve problems. And so, if we imagine a problem and then imagine something we're going to do about it, we get a little bit of relief, just the tiniest little bit. Right. It reinforces thinking about a problem, imagining it, and imagining what to do about it. And if you do that 10,000 times, you have an obsessive disorder.
0: <laughs> and even worse. Especially if you do it ten thousand times in a twenty four hour period. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and then,
1: yeah. And then if you say you imagine it and then you go, Oh, I know what to do. I'll knock on wood. Or I'll turn around twice. Or I'll count to three. Yeah. Okay, I'll do something. Okay, you do that a thousand times and now you have a compulsive disorder. Yeah.
0: Or you know I'll I'll make my spouse promise that they love me and aren't cheating. Right. You know, <laughs> just so I can get a little relief. A little yeah, relief. A little leave relief relief. Get-
1: yeah. Well, I already promised this morning. I want you to promise again. Yeah. Okay, so that drives everybody crazy. It temporarily gives you get a little relief, yep. but then ultimately anxiety grows and dominates your life. Procrastination is the other. 15 to 20% of the population describe themselves as procrastinated. What's a procrastinator? There's something to do. I'm anxious about it, and so what do I do? I don't do it. I talk myself out of it. I get a little bit of relief when I talk myself out of it. So I had I had to
0: clean up my desktop,
1: or yeah, well yeah, thirty percent. Or I had
0: to check the CNN.
1: Thirty percent of being online (laughs) is (laughs) procrastination. Is it really percent?
0: I wish I could get it to (laughs) thirty (laughs) percent.
1: Okay, so now I'm going to give. I'm going to tell everybody two of the biggest, best anxiety-regulating techniques that have ever been developed, ever. Okay, oh, let's
0: have a drum roll. These are the two hey, drum, biggest
1: drum roll. Okay, for anxiety anxiety regulating technique number one, best ever. Cool. Never let anxiety decide. Ever. Hmm. If anxiety wants to make a decision, you go, sorry, I'm gonna go a little deeper into what's right. What's the right thing to do, what's hmm. the best thing to do, what's consistent with my mission, consistent with my principles. And I'm going to do that. I am never going to let anxiety decide.
0: Wow. Anxiety
1: wants me to knock on wood. Sorry, anxiety, I'm not going to knock on wood. Anxiety wants me to do obsess about everything that can go wrong when I fly in the plane. Sorry, anxiety, I'm not going to use my creativity to imagine a bazillion things that can go wrong in the plane. Never let anxiety decide. Always let what you believe is the right thought or the right action decide. Well, I love that. And I, I think of the famous Eleanor Roosevelt quote.
0: I think she's talking about public speaking, and I may mangle it, but it's something like when what you have to say is more important than you, then you know you're on the right track. You know? God, I love that woman. And that's Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah. Jeez.
1: Yeah. And so, and there's some other stuff, but so that's that's number one. Never so getting in sex. touch
0: with your bigger mission and not letting this sort of contracted, anxious, quivering, fear freak self. Uh, Make the
1: decision. Never let anxiety decide. Always let, always insist on what you, you can decide what to think about and what to do. So always decide on thinking about and doing the stuff that's the right thing to think about and do. Cool. So that's the first one. Here's the second one. Procrastination. Anytime you find yourself procrastinating on something, do it. And you know, you don't have to do all of it. Just do it for 20 minutes. If Mm -hmm. you can't do it for 20 minutes, do it for 15 minutes. You know, the the, the famous organizing guy, productive guy, Paul Allen, in his his book, I think it's called Getting It Done. He recommends these 20-minute increments. That's fine. That's enough to get into a flow state. But the bottom line is when you're procrastinating, if you avoid what you're procrastinating, you're going to amplify your anxiety. So as soon as you find yourself procrastinating, if at all possible, do what you're procrastinating. Right. It will ultimately reduce your anxiety. Right on. You know, back in the 70s, when everybody was trying to find out what was going on, they and I was doing assertion training in those days and looking at the research. And there were three things that everybody knew dramatically reduced anxiety. One of them was deep relaxation. So there was a lot of somatic uh, training going on, and it was really the precursor to mindfulness-based stress reduction, because they, mm-hmm. they didn't know it, but they were also teaching mindfulness when they were teaching deep relaxation. Right. So the second one was assertive action. If you're engaged in assertive action, anxiety plummets instantaneously, you know, not gradually, you know, instantaneously. It's very much like uh, a heart rate variability. If you take a deep breath and a slow exhale, your heart rate can go from 70 to to 50. Right. uh, In a a half second. Yeah. So the second one was um, assertive action. And the third one, one of my favorites, was sexual arousal. There's a point in sexual arousal beyond which you stop being anxious and you just do sex. Now, you know, to those of us that have had anxiety show up during sex, which is all of us, you know, <laughs> know that there are exceptions to that, but, but those were, that was kind of the beginning of people dealing with that. Yeah. Now, you know, to, to me, um, I want... Could, again, well, can I, I just I, say something about
0: all three of those? Sure, all three sure. of those just insist that we be in the moment. -hmm. I mean, if we're meditating, the whole point of meditation is to be in the moment. Now, I've sat in many, many meditations, being an anxious person and actually somebody who suffered with a serious four year anxiety siege. I sat in meditation and flopped sweat Mm -hmm. um, with anxiety. Uh, But it was, you know, I can look back on it now and realize that I was doing it wrong in a way. I mean, I was using meditation as a way of getting ever more mindful of the, you know, the exquisite details of my suffering. Yeah, without right. you know pouring in some equanimity, uh, you know, and some letting go and coming back and all of that good stuff. So you got to watch you don't get too much mindfulness and, and not enough equanimity in meditation. That was a big lesson for me. The mm-hmm. second one you're talking about assertiveness, assertive action. You know, mm-hmm. if you're really doing something, you can't be doing anything else. It's like going down that you know the the, the first hill in a roller coaster. You know, that's you're hard. you're there. And then the other one, sexual arousal. Also, I mean, if you're doing it right, and of course, we can have anxiety about that, and we can even use it as procrastination. But <laughs> when we're doing it right, you can't not be there, and in the moment, and, and and so you're outside, you're beside yourself. I love how our language, you know, you get blown away, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and there's, and then you enter this flow state, and, and also just to go back to what you were talking about, where if you can't. You know, if, when you feel the, the need to procrastinate, do it. I'd say do it for fucking five minutes. I mean, yeah, just get off dead center and, yeah. and, you know, the chances are you'll, you'll get absorbed literally again. And again, our language gives us away. We become absorbed into the thing. We are no longer subject doing object. We are subject, object arising. And that is the opposite of anxiety. That is a delicious and
1: uh, a a A lot of somatic uh, training going on. And it was really the precursor to mindfulness-based stress reduction because they Mm -hmm. they didn't know it, but they were also teaching mindfulness when they were teaching deep relaxation. Right. The second one was assertive action. If you're engaged in assertive action, anxiety plummets instantaneously, you know, not gradually, you know, instantaneously. It's very much like uh, a heart rate variability. If you take a deep breath and a slow exhale, your heart rate can go from 70 to to 50 uh, in a a half second. Yeah. So the second one was um, assertive activity. And the third one, one of my favorites, was sexual arousal. There's a point in sexual arousal beyond which you stop being anxious and you just do sex. Now, you know, to those of us that have had anxiety show up during sex, which is all of us, you know, <laughs> know that there are exceptions to that. But but those were that was kind of the beginning of people dealing with that. Yeah. Now, you know, to, to me, um, I want... Could, the, well, yeah, can I to, just say something about
0: all three of those? Sure, all sure. three of those just insist that we be in the moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're meditating, the whole point of meditation... Is to be in the moment. Now, I've sat in many, many meditations, being an anxious person and actually somebody who suffered with a serious four year anxiety siege. I sat in meditation and flopped sweat um, Mm -hmm. with anxiety. Uh, But it was, you know, I could look back on it now and realize that I was doing it wrong in a way. I mean, I was using meditation as a way of getting ever more mindful of the, you know, the exquisite details of my suffering without, (laughs) you know, pouring in some equanimity. Uh, you know, and some letting go and coming back and all of that good stuff. So you got to watch you don't get too much mindfulness and, and not enough equanimity and meditation. That was a big lesson for me. The mm-hmm. second one you're talking about, assertiveness, assertive action. You know, mm-hmm. if you're really doing something, you can't be doing anything else. It's like going down that, you know, the the, the first hill in a roller coaster. You know, you're, right. you're there. And then the other one, sexual arousal. Also, I mean, if you're doing it right, and of course, we can have anxiety about that, and we can even use it as procrastination. But <laughs> when we're doing it right, you can't not be there. And in the moment, and, and and so you're outside, you're beside yourself. I love how our language. You know, you get blown away, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and there's and then you enter this flow state, and and also just to go back to what you were talking about, where if you can't. You know, if when you feel the the need to procrastinate, do it. I'd say do it for fucking five minutes. I mean, just get off dead center, and and you know the chances are you'll you'll get absorbed literally again. And again, our language gives us away. We become absorbed into the thing. We are no longer uh, subject doing object. We are subject object arising, and that is the opposite of anxiety. That is a delicious and uh, being anxious.
1: As, as, as a guy, I am an am any type
0: six. I feel so. like a failure for being embarrassed by my anxiety.
1: Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so as a fear type I myself, feel bad
0: about feeling like a failure for my fear. embarrassment about my anxiety. It just goes on and on.
1: That's right. Two, th- 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 there were a couple of fear types. We could go back and forth. We could do a recursive <laughs> loop on fear, you and I. So, so as a kid, I was ashamed of my fear, and I was anxious about my shame and my fear, and then I was anxious about being anxious. <laughs> okay, so somebody says, you're anxious. And I go, no, I'm not. And at that particular moment, I'm not aware of it because I'm I'm not. I just dissociated. I just cut myself off from my experience. And if I checked in, I'm feeling blank. In fact, this is often true of people that have a um, avoidant attachment history where, you know, where they had parents who were dismissive about emotions or they have parents that had a dismissive emotional coaching strategy around emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, John Gottman talks about meta emotion. There's emotion that we feel and there's meta emotion that's how we feel about feelings. And So if I feel judgmental, if I feel ashamed of anxiety, if I feel frightened of anxiety for instance, if I'm anxious about anxiety. Then, rather than move towards it and try to understand it and try to integrate it, I'm going to try to avoid it. And this is completely supported by the pharmaceutical industry, by the psychiatric industry, it's supported by the the ethos of Western culture. Mm -hmm. uh, And it causes, and in the absence of the tribal and interpersonal regulatory things that we've had historically. A family is an interpersonal regulation, often of anxiety. When you and I are connected with each other, our anxiety goes down. It's true. I um, mean, so we always seek out each other. Well, it's, it's you
0: know, it's, it's sort of the, the the basic move is to get out of yourself. Yeah. I mean, to, to sort of aerate the small self with mm-hmm. action in the world or relationship with another person. Absolutely. Uh, anxiety shared is anxiety
1: lessened. You know. And so, ex- emotional coaching is when parents, and then and parents and lovers, you know, you can do this. You know, we all do it with each other. Say emotions are important and interesting and re- and revealing. Let's look at it with interest. Let's look at your emotion with interest, acceptance, and compassion. Now, if I'm looking at my anxiety with com- with acceptance and caring intent, a couple of things happen. One thing is my anxiety dramatically dismiss- uh, diminishes. Secondly, whatever it is that that Keith needs to be doing, even if it's just Keith needing to remind himself to be in the present moment, it starts happening. And so being emotionally coaching involves uh, almost a reckless, a a courageous um, commitment to acceptance of everything that arises out of shadow into consciousness. And if it's anxiety, it's anxiety. Yeah. And this is one of the things that, again, that Integral um, is so helpful for. Because okay, you and I are fear types. So, say you discover your fear type, you go, "I don't want to be a fear type." Well, do, do, let's
0: a, just pause there for a second and you know explain that when you talk about fear types, you use an enneagram. I'm, I'm assuming, yeah. and so you're a seven, uh, six. Uh, you're a six. I'm a five, mm-hmm. and so five, sixes, and sevens are the three fear types. Yeah. Right. And just for you know balance, so there are three types that are based in anger. I yeah. believe. And three that are based in sort of longing, yeah, and a feeling of being abandoned and left, and
1: yeah, more body, more shame-based, yeah. really. Yeah.
0: Okay, fair enough. All right. Yeah,
1: eight, nine, and one are anger types. Um, two, three, and four are the body types, the shame types, and and five, six, and seven are the fear types. Right. Uh, now, okay. Now this is just one typology system, but. If you discover that, that say, you're an anxious person and you have judgments about anxious people, now all of a sudden you're you're not just anxious, worried about, about things that are happening. You're worried about who you are because <laughs> <laughs> you're ashamed of who you are. Now you're worried about encountering who I am because then I'll encounter my shame of who I am. See, you, this creates an awful lot of uh, – now we then we harness consciousness in service of trying to avoid who we are and trying to avoid what we feel. Consciousness, as powerful as it is, develops. Powerful mechanisms: dissociation, projection, denial, um, addiction—all um, these kinds of things um, that are self-reinforcing over time. And now, you add into that, there's a, there's an undercurrent always of violence when we're avoiding ourselves, because hmm. it's a violent act to attack ourselves or avoid ourselves. And then, that that violence gets played out not just around us, but around other people. And then that in violence causes all the problems in the world. As we go inward and we pay attention to, say, anxiety, we go, okay, what is it? First of all, I accept that it's happening. Second of all, what needs to happen right now? What's the best thing to think? And you know, I'm in the present moment asking myself that. Thirdly, I engage in that. As I do that, I begin to have a couple of things that happen interiorly. One, my unconscious stops being as scared of anxiety. It stops being as judgmental about it. Yeah. And so, my shadow material, as it comes out in the future, is likely to be more mature and more compassionate. And number two, I'm beginning. I'm, I'm rather than than creating a, a system that's, that's oscillating like a like a gyroscope out of balance. Now the system is getting more in balance, okay? Which sets me up for f- further horizontal and vertical development, and that's a big deal. Um, and and you know how we we, tr- we show up for each other is a big deal about this. A lot of anxiety and a lot of shame involves imagining other people looking at us with disapproval. Right. It's 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 fascinating to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, you get up in the morning and you look in your closet and even if you're a guy, you go, okay, I'm going to put on clothes. And one of the reasons you're going to put on the clothes is you're imagining people are going to look at you and you don't want them to disapprove of you. Right. Uh, or you want them to approve of you. Yeah. And so it's it's this 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 relationship with an imaginary audiences. And so whenever I walk down the street and I look at everybody, I know that they all woke up and did that in some fashion. Even yeah. the homeless people, okay. And it's just it staggers me. Yeah. It, it's it's you know you know why we not know it's the center. lower left
0: of the quadrants. I mean we live in a we space with other people, and that cannot be reduced to anything other than what it is, which is you know we're we're in this together. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: and we get anxious about other people might not like us. So they might judge us. or they might misunderstand us. And so, so and of course all that stuff happens. And so if we engage in pro social healthy activity around that anxiety, you know, if I'm anxious about people um, being critical of me, I go, okay, so let's go further. Who are you worried about? And it doesn't reflect some aspect of you that you actually want to grow. Um, and if, you, if, if that's the case, let's focus on growing that part. And if yeah. we can't do a, let's get people to help us with it. Well, that's, you know, when I think of,
0: of my own experience with anxiety, and as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I had a, a you know, siege of an anxiety disorder that was uh, as bad as anything I've ever experienced in my life that lasted for four years. And I was a meditator. I was into integral. I knew a lot of this kind of stuff. And it got worse and worse to the point where I was – I, I, I think of it as just being a black hole. I, I was, in some ways, a black hole of self-focused rumination, in a way, <laughs> you know, where I just couldn't get out of my body sensations. And, and there are other people, and I'm sure there are people listening. Some may be in this kind of a, a grip. It was like I couldn't get out of it. I, there was no way. I tried all the drugs Every drug I took made me worse. And I'm not even anti-drug. There were some people I know in similar situations where my mother, Prozac, I'm sorry, Paxil, was a huge help for her. And yeah, her all the drugs
1: are useful on occasion for specific things. Yeah. Now, tell, but know,
0: I just tell... want to say, for, for me, they weren't. The final shift for me was, uh, you know, kind of what you're talking about. I, I became a chaplain. I was in my second year of my master's degree program at Naropa and Buddhist you know, Masters of Divinity program. And I was sitting at the bedside of people who were actually dying. I, I had this big hypochondria thing. That's how my anxiety, you know, I was taking my blood pressure a uh, hundred plus times a day for a while there, that kind of stuff, <laughs> yeah. you know. And uh, and this wasn't, this was, you know, 2001, it ended. So not all that long ago. And it was sitting at the bedside of people where I, it, somehow it broke that black hole. Uh, and some light started shining out. And the gravity gravitational pull, I was able to escape. And I was able to touch these other people. And that was the beginning. And it was two weeks of that. And my my anxiety dissolved. And the other thing I did, and this is actually going back to what you were talking about earlier with the animals. Animals don't feel anxiety. And one of the reasons they don't, not anxiety in the way that we do, at least, and one of the reasons is, as you said, they deal with it. And I found this book called Taming the Tiger by Peter Levine. And it's Love a that, somatic – yeah, it's a great book. A somatic approach to dealing with anxiety. So, inspired by the impala who gets run down by the cheetah and manages to get away, the, che- the, the impala goes off by itself and shakes for two or three or four hours. Just uh, shakes. And gets rid of the anxiety and moves on through very somatic process, very natural in the in the animal kingdom. So you know he has practices for that. Basically, it's it's in my case it was screaming, and just you know expressing my anxiety. I shut the doors. I made sure I was alone, and I you know if anybody heard me, they would have called the cops. Uh, but that and actually s- sitting in a situation where my the other person was just bigger and more powerful than my own self-regard was finally what, you know, broke it up. And it was dramatic. It ended in basically a weekend. It was gone. I knew it was gone
1: and I knew it would not come back. And it hasn't. My favorite part of that story is the transition was you decided to be in service of other people. Yep. And deciding to be in service of other people was so good for you. Yes. And, and I don't think it was just good for you in terms of, you know, it, it, it was an anti-anxiety. I think it was good for you because you were sitting frozen, needing to be in service of other people because that's you, Jeff. Yeah. And not letting yourself do it. You know, that's what we do. We avoid what we're anxious about. And you're trying to, trying to deal with the anxiety instead of listening to what's it saying. It's saying you got to break out of this and go serve the world. Exactly. You broke out of it, started serving the world. The anxiety says, my work is done, and now go serve the world. Well, yeah, I'm grateful
0: for that because if I had gotten my wish, now my, what what preceded my anxiety disorder was I sold a business and I didn't have to work anymore. a
1: so disaster. It's a dis- was complete a disaster. disaster.
0: Yeah. I go down to Florida <laughs> with my wonderful husband, and we build this beautiful house on the beach And I have a library in the top floor, and it's just the perfect, it's it's what, a five? I'm an Enneagram five. All I wanted was to get away from people, find the trap door where I could find myself in my world of books and ideas, and there I was. And I didn't have to do anything. And that was nice for a year. It was pretty good for two years. Three years, four years, I became a complete and utter mess because life isn't about getting what you want. Life isn't about doing what you want. Life is about having a mission bigger than yourself. And only in that can we truly be blown away. Can we truly lose ourselves in a way that,
1: you know, makes us fantastic. You, you know, my you and Ken Wilbur are my two favorite India type fives. <laughs> so Ken Wilbur and I were hanging out together two weeks ago. Um, and when we're together, I like to ask him about his creative process. I find it fascinating because, you know, he kind of lives in his department and studies and, and used to be by the pool. But he gets up and he, he writes. And as he's writing, um, he's giving. Yes. Okay. And so that loop, you know, and now, now the way writing sometimes is painful for him because he studies and studies, you know, wake up and you go, oh, book. And then he has to transcribe a book for the next month. You know, he said, God damn it, Ken. That's never happened for me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I really, what a know, problem. I really got my, my book writing is a hell of a lot sloppier than that. But, you know, and so there, that that loop, that that was for him, that giving, you know, the writing is giving. That's right. a necessary part of that life. And, you know, we talked about it. Uh, he said the last time the, that I visited him, which was just two weeks ago, um, I was talking to him about ambition. I said, you know, my ambition has kind of gone down in the last year and a half, two years. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, there's an inverse relationship between ego development and ambition. Um, (laughs) And uh, I said, what do you do about that? He said, well, it's like weight training. You know, you need to pick your goal and then do it. And he said, because there's this, the the cosmos, um, to the extent that you understand the truths of the cosmos, you need to explain that to other people. Yeah. And if you don't, you get sick. Isn't that something? <laughs> yeah. I just love that.
0: It's yeah. so, so true. And it's such a simple principle in a way. You, you can't make the your own happiness the object of your life. It's no. the
1: surest road to unhappiness. The research supports that. People who are just trying to get happy don't get happy as much as people who focus on the things that are associated with happy people. Now, this brings us back to anxiety. Yeah. If you're in a culture that says the goal is zero anxiety, then you're always sick because you never get there. Yeah. If the goal is you're never depressed, we're always sick. And so essentially that cultural standard, that's a lower left pathology, cultural standard, institutionalized in the lower right of the pharmaceutical and the psychiatric industry, yeah. leaving everybody, we're always sick. And so in the Western society, what do you do when you're sick? You get medicine for it. Okay, so now we're all this, this whole, you know, sick medicine deal. Now, all the drugs are really useful in specific situations for specific things, but they're useful if I take a drug that, the, that increases the amount of serotonin in my frontal lobes and I feel better, that's great, but, but there was an awful lot of habits of thought and behavior that was associated with that anxiety and that depression in my frontal lobe. Those need to be addressed. And not address in the terms of now I gotta get rid of these bad habits primarily, address in the term of what were the what what are the signals of those bad habits that point me to the good habits that my or, that my being is craving? Yeah. Um that, habits of service, habits of self-care, habits of of being in the present moment, but- habits of feeling unity with God, um, you know, habits of compassion. Okay, so so the negative emotions. Pushes towards wanting to develop those habits. And as we develop those habits, the, the negative habits are supplanted by them. And part of that is because we're, we're literally training our shadow to be more organized. And by the time shadow comes up to our conscious self, it's more coherent, it's more organized, it's more compassionate. It does a lot more of the work for us. And now we can go farther.
0: Sounds like a lot of trouble. <laughs> I'd rather take the drugs.
1: No, the the drugs. drugs would
0: be easier. But here's the thing I think, I actually think, as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, you know, for me, the drugs not only did nothing, they made me worse. And I think it's just sort of the intelligence of the universe or God. I was capable of working the way you're talking about. And so I wasn't going to be allowed to take drugs. That's right. My poor old mother was in a completely different situation. She There was no hope of her, you know, working her way out of her situation. And for her, the drugs were a kindness. Right. And maybe it's just as simple as that. If you have the capacity to work your way out of it, then the ways you're talking about and the way we've been talking about, then you're kind of required to. Well,
1: and also there's just being alive. I remember David Data was talking about um, basically tantric sex practices, so he doesn't use that word, but then someone asked him about it. Oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. And he said, you know, sometimes you just want to get stoned and just have sex. You know, <laughs> <laughs> <Just> fuck it. <laughs> you know, like who cares? You know. And so every once in a while, you know, it's just like, you know, if I get anxious about not living a perfectly impeccable life, that's fucking crazy too.
0: Okay? <laughs> Good point. Thank you for so, reminding you know,
1: me. When I, you know, when I wrote Integral Mindfulness. The first part of it, really, I think in the introduction, was about mindfulness. All the rest of it was, okay, now that I'm mindful, what's the best thing for me to do from an integrally informed understanding? Now, the more that you're involved in a life like that, the more anxiety becomes trivialized to a certain extent. It just becomes another emotion. Certainly, I like the pleasure emotions more than the pain emotions. And certainly, a human being in a state of homeostasis feels way more pleasure emotions than pain emotions. The experience of coherence is a pleasurable emotion. The experience of intimacy, pleasurable emotion. Flow. Experience, love. Ple- all those things. Yeah, flow.
0: The, you flow. know, being absorbed in a project.
1: Yeah, Zing m- 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 all his flow work. And so the painful emotions generally point to a dysregulation, a rhythm, a problem uh, that needs to be solved, an an issue that needs to be addressed, uh, something that needs attention, whether it's physical pain or psychological pain. And so you bring compassionate attention to bear, you adjust it, and often you know that you're making the right move because you're getting back to a pleasurable state of coherence, of flow, of, of equanimity, of love, of intimacy, and so on. Um, And, you know, sometimes you just can't rush it. Yeah. You know, if you're having panic attacks, you have to deal with the separation distress of panic attacks. And there are steps that you can take to teach yourself to not have panic attacks. Um, But, you know, it takes a
0: while. Well, and I love what you said a minute ago about, you know, we have to sort of challenge this consensus that we're not supposed to feel anxiety or depression. Right. Uh, Actually, we are supposed to feel anxiety and depression. Yeah, You know, it's supposed to be here and, you know, it's a big, you know, mound of stuff we can work with and we're not going to work our way through all of it. You and know, that's if, just the way it is. And that's uh, okay too.
1: If you don't feel, if you want to have optimal performance, there's a, a whole body of work called the zone of optimal performance that uh, was begin, it began to be explored by the Russians training their Olympic athletes. And so what they found is that there's a certain amount of anxiety that's necessary to have optimal performance. And so what you need, if you wanna get something done or if you wanna do a performance, you need to have an anxiety architecture that you apply to have just the amount, just the right amount of anxiety to optimize your performance. Just like in, in the military, they have anger architecture to have just the right amount of anger to be able to go into combat. And they found this out with an interesting study. Um, they people were about ready to do some kind of athletic thing and they measured their basal resistance level on their fingers, which is the amount of liquid on the their f- fingers. And there were people who did really well and people who did really badly and they had the same BRL. And so the researchers go, I don't understand what's going on. Somebody said, well, let's just measure their skin temperature as well as the BRL. And they found out that the people that were doing really well had their skin was hot. Hmm. Uh, they were they were anxious, but it was they were motivated anxious. They had the right amount, and the people that did poorly, their skin was cold. Interesting. They've gone too far into the anxiety. Their their blood was withdrawing from the periphery towards Oof. the core, and they weren't being as able to function.
0: Yeah. Wow. I can feel into both of those. You know, yeah. that hot anxiety and that cold anxiety.
1: Yeah. And give me hot any day. Give me hot every day, and a little bit of that is optimal. For if you want to give a talk, if you want to do an athletic, if you want to go play tennis, if you want yeah. to do anything, just to go to a party, just a little bit. Yeah, and and everybody has a different amount that optimizes. That's their zone of individual opti- optimal performance. And so, if we're not frightened of anxiety, we can we can observe that and kind of find it and titrate it in ourselves.
0: Yeah. Well, I always love the line from I guess Walter Cronkite is said to have said this, but again, being in front of people, public speaking. He says it's normal to have butterflies. You just want to have them fly in formation.
1: <laughs> I like that. So you know, Bill Russell, I probably already told this story. Bill Russell, the, the arguably the one of the best basketball players that ever lived, sure. always threw up before a game. <laughs> always threw up before a game. You know, he would get anxious to the point that he'd throw up. So now it was such a it was such because they kept winning championships. It was such a a routine that his teammates would get worried when he didn't throw up before a game. (laughs) Yeah. You know, Bill didn't throw up. What's going on? What's wrong?
0: Yeah. Well that's again, it's like it's one of the things we do to sort of alleviate our anxiety is we have our little superstitions and, you know, our little um, you know, ideas we have to
1: Well, and this is the positive form. I talked about OCD. This is the positive form of uh, an o- of OCD. Right. Every time I get in a car and I'm going to drive, I do a mantra. And the mantra is I will not have an accident, see an accident or cause an accident on this trip. And when I do that, I imagine a bubble of white light around my car and I, I imagine myself focusing on the number one job of somebody in a car, which is to not get in an accident or cause an accident. And so that's a ritual that I like. I've embraced yeah. that ritual. I would get disturbed if I started, I get disturbed if I forget doing the ritual and then I do the ritual, but the ritual is a random ritual. It's a ritual that I, and we have, we all have ceremonial yeah. stuff that we no, do. That's, that's terrific. And,
0: and, and, and actually, let me ask you just as a practical question, you know, you deal with your own anxiety. You're, again, you're helping thousands of people deal with their anxiety. You've given us tons of, you know, procrastination and, you know, all of the stuff you've talked about, but. Any other back pocket tricks like, you know, the white light that you might
1: share? Well, every once in a while, I have a panic attack. I haven't had one in a while. But I remember back in 84 or so, I went to UCSB to give a talk on relationships. And it was I was hungry. It would have been a long day, a lot of distressing work. And I'd gone right from work, stood up on the podium and looked at the audience, about 100 people, went into a full on panic attack. And so, um, it was an interesting moment. And so I was sitting there with myself and I went, okay, you know, the panic attack says you're going to die and you know, your, your dorsolateral, uh, uh, frontal, uh, prefrontal cortex is shut off. So you think you're caught in eternity. And I said, I don't give a fuck if I die, you know, I'm going to start my talk. And if I die, I die. Right. Um, and so afterwards I was I, and so I gave the talk and it went away and, and, and so on, um, and what this did is it, is it, it brought me back to, to one I, – I just gave a, a talk at Boulder Integral on the warrior and the man of wisdom. And um, when you're in a, a moment of anxiety, um, uh, when you're in a critical state – and you feel weak when you're in a moment of anxiety. Anxiety does not make you feel strong. You feel weak. Um, this is a fertile moment because in this moment, if we can do our best to do right – We discover ourselves. We discover our courage. We practice courage. Courage doesn't happen in the absence of fear or anxiety. Courage always happens in the presence of fear and anxiety. That's what courage is. It's doing the right thing even though you're scared, even though you're anxious, even though you're worried. And so- Well, and I love what you said about, you know,
0: it's almost a warrior credo. Today is a good day to die. Okay, fuck it. Kill
1: me. Yeah. But you know, you're gonna to have to get through me to kill yeah, me. Exactly. You have to you have to get through me first. Yes, right on. And so what the anxiety then is becomes a threshold. If we walk through it, doing our best to think the right thing and do the right thing, we discover our courage. And in discovering our courage, we go a little deeper into our hearts. And we go mm-hmm. a little deeper into our principles. Nice. And and then it becomes another guide just like all the emotions are guides and ultimately if you keep following the guides they lead you to unity with God yeah I mean that's just that all the paths converge on that yes
0: well it's, it's like you know just that talking about that original Buddhist um, sort of formulation that we have our small self and to the degree that we're contracted around this idea of being a separate self we are feeling fear and anxiety that is the nature the flavor of that type of consciousness. And to whatever degree we can aerate that, that we can expand it, we can breathe in space, that we can get bigger, then that's a relief, a relief. Other people come into our lives, another relief. But we get a bigger, a mission, and that's more of a relief, more connects us to this bigger world to the point where finally we are actually identified with the oneness, with the absolute reality,
1: and that can't be hurt. That's right. And now here's the other side of it. The other side of it is whenever you've lost your sense of humor— you've regressed one or two developmental stages. Okay, so <laughs> I'm aware of my sense of humor is there and when it's not. If my sense of humor is gone, then, and I'm in an anxious state, part of it, where's, Keith, where's your sense of humor? When my sense, what is a sense of humor? That's a, a good marker, hu- isn't it? Huh? That's a good marker, isn't it? It really is. And so if you're aware of whether your sense of humor is lit or not, I mean, it's like a little green light. You know, if the green light of sense of humor is on, everything's going to be going a lot better because you're self-observing, not just with compassion, but with a certain sense of, okay, it's not the divine tragedy, it's the divine comedy. (laughs) Right on. You know, that's life. And that little green light of sense of humor being on, combined with the incredible responsibility of being God's emissary in the universe... (laughs) The, that combination is a really great combination. No, you're kidding. Right
0: on. Well, Dr. Keith, you made me feel better again. <laughs> <laughs> you always <laughs> made me feel better. I good. love when you do that. <laughs> As a fear freak over here in Boulder. It gives me a little more little more uh, insight and uh, you know capacity and, and encouragement for yeah. dealing with this sort of basic vibration of life. And
1: listen to that word, encouragement. Yes. You know, yes. we listen to our anxiety. We are encouraged. Our courage is amplified. You know, we use it as a as a vehicle to courage. And courage is beautiful. Courage makes me cry.
0: Yeah. Oh. Well, Dr. Keith, are we complete, perfect, and whole on this topic? Or is there any other I think we are complete perfect and whole for this moment. For this moment. I do too. <laughs> So again, folks, thanks for listening. Is there anything, Keith, that you want people to be aware of or any new work or anything you're posting or?
1: My book, Integral Mindfulness, is still out there if you haven't read it. Yeah, and my uh, class, Loving Completely, and uh, my lectures is, is, class is still available on Integral Life. And my lectures are available for sale uh, on uh, my website as well as some, um, some mini classes. Cool. I'm currently working on a book on Shadows that I'm excited about and
0: and we've talked about that and yeah, uh, yeah. And, I don't know when that's going to be done and continue um, to.
1: Yeah. So, you know, that stuff. Yeah.
0: Uh, and so, all of it on dr. Keith with.com. Com. And, and integral life and integral life also is a home of the daily Evolver as well as my website, dailyevolver.com Com. And so folks, you can find out more about us there. And, um, thank you so much for listening and, um, Uh, join us again for the next installment of The Shrink and the Pundit. Thanks, folks. Bye, Keith. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks, everybody.